Good morning. It's Tuesday, November 16th. I'm Duarte Geraldino. And I'm Shamita Basu. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. The fate of Kyle Rittenhouse is now in the hands of a jury. The New Yorker looks at just what these men and women actually have to decide. Criminal trials, they often turn on questions of fact. Who pulled the trigger? Who was at the scene? But none of that is in dispute here. In August of 2020, Rittenhouse shot and killed two men and wounded another. He was at a racial justice protest in Kenosha, Wisconsin at the time. The question is whether it was self-defense. Rittenhouse faces multiple felony charges. The most serious is first-degree intentional homicide. If he's convicted, he could be sentenced to life in prison. Wisconsin law says jurors could find that he acted in self-defense if they decide that he had a reasonable fear of imminent death or severe injury. The defense argued Rittenhouse had several reasons to be afraid that the people he killed were trying to take his rifle from him and possibly shoot him with it. They say the other man who was shot had pointed a gun at Rittenhouse. The prosecution says Rittenhouse came to the protest looking for trouble. In closing arguments, the prosecutor showed drone footage of Rittenhouse pointing his weapon at demonstrators. If he provoked the confrontation, there's no right to self-defense. The people on this jury are under a lot of pressure. During the selection process, one prospective juror was nervous, saying, whatever happens, half the country would be angry with the jury. To deal with potential unrest following the verdict, Wisconsin's governor is telling hundreds of National Guard troops, be on standby. Last year, Julie Levitch went to her boyfriend's house to return his phone. The doorbell was broken, so she knocked on the window, and it shattered. A neighbor heard the sound of the glass breaking and called the cops. When the police got there and saw Julie's bloody hand, even though both she and her boyfriend explained nothing was wrong, they arrested her. By the time that Julie got out of jail, she found that her mugshot was everywhere. That's Carrie Blakinger. She's a reporter with the Marshall Project. She was worried about how this would, you know, influence her job opportunities. And, you know, she was worried about how this would influence her personal and social life. But she, you know, was also just, I think, horrified by the idea that your mugshot will end up out there forever on a case that can be dismissed for such a low-level crime. Even though the charges against Julie were dropped, she's one of many people whose worst day follows them around online. The Marshall Project looked into the impact of mugshots and at calls to restrict what police and media outlets can do with them. Blakinger, the reporter behind the story, has her own experience with this. In 2010, she was arrested. Her mugshot was taken as she was booked on heroin-related charges. And I was sort of still in this druggy haze, starting to detox the next day when some of the other women in the cell block woke me up and wanted to point out my face on the evening news. And it was probably one of the worst pictures that's ever been taken of me. By the time I got out two years later, that picture was still everywhere. And, you know, I was trying to rebuild my life. And the first thing you see when you Google me was this mugshot. Some supporters of police accountability and government transparency worry about what it could mean if mugshots are kept under wraps. One reporter points out these images are sometimes the only evidence of police brutality. Mugshots are often considered public records, so it's hard for people whose lives are damaged by their release to sue. 
But a few things are pushing the drive to change the way we disseminate mugshots. One is a concern about the lasting impact for the person in the picture, like Blakinger described. Another is whether publishing mugshots perpetuates racial bias. The police chief in San Francisco cited that as the reason why their department stopped the practice last year, saying when people see these pictures in the news, it creates false ideas about who's most likely to commit crimes. Many media outlets have stopped publishing mugshots. And recently, some states, including New York and California, have put restrictions on releasing them. So you're on your way home or to meet someone, and as soon as you get into your car, the vehicle itself demands that you pass a sobriety test, or else it won't start. Congress is asking car makers to seriously explore this idea. This is one of the lesser-known parts of that giant new infrastructure bill. Roughly 10,000 people in the U.S. die in drunken driving crashes every year. Gizmodo looks at what lawmakers are trying to do here and the concerns about the technology. This legislation could apply to new cars sold as early as 2026. But the government hasn't specified what technology car companies should use to detect potentially impaired drivers. The idea of monitoring drivers is not new. It's pretty common for courts to order convicted drunken drivers to install breathalyzers. These prevent cars from starting if alcohol is detected. But a widespread rollout, that could require new technology. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the auto industry have been working on a new detection system since 2008. It could check for alcohol by scanning a driver's breath or by using a touch system to measure blood alcohol levels through the skin. Manufacturers are working on other systems, too, including ones that have cameras and sensors that monitor whether drivers are showing signs of being distracted or drunk. Gizmodo says while safety groups, including Mothers Against Drunk Driving, are praising this legislation, some privacy and driver advocates say new systems could infringe on civil liberties. They want to know the technology reliably works so lawful drivers aren't barred from starting their cars. Also, it needs to prevent false negatives. They don't want people who actually drank too much to believe, well, since my car started, I guess it's okay for me to drive. If it tastes like pork, if it smells like pork, but it isn't made from a pig, is it actually pork? That is the question some religious communities are confronting when it comes to plant-based meat. The Wall Street Journal looks at how Jewish and Islamic authorities are viewing fake pork. One of the world's largest kosher certification groups says plant-based pork from Impossible Foods is not kosher. In the past, there have been controversies when pork-related products that didn't contain actual pork were certified kosher. The journal speaks to the rabbi who is CEO of this certification group. He says... The decision might be reviewed at some point. Impossible Foods says it'll keep trying. A key Islamic authority in America has also refused to certify the plant-based pork as halal. One halal certifier says it won't certify anything labeled as pork. So its recommendation? Try an alternative name. This same certifier has approved fake sausages, fake meatballs, and burgers as halal. So creative naming has been a solution before. The journal talks to the owner of a kosher-certified restaurant who had to rewrite menus after authorities objected to the lamb bacon on the menu. So he breaks out his dictionary and says the word bacon refers to any thin strip that's cured and smoked. But 
He says he could make his case. The solution? The menu now reads Fakin'. I love that word. I'm going to be saying Fakin' all day long. (laughs) You can find all these stories and more in the Apple News app. And while you're in the app, keep listening to hear narrated articles from our News Plus partners. We'll talk with you again tomorrow.